0: welcome to the surrender podcast surrender is a collective of christian groups and organizations from across australia we work in unity to share jesus call to seek his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven we create spaces for the sharing of stories that motivate support and equip people to love their neighbor share good news and live justly both locally and globally please note Surrender provides spaces for conversation and storytelling and does not necessarily endorse the personal views of any one presenter. This is a panel workshop featuring a conversation between Michael Frost, Catherine Hingley and John Owen. It's facilitated by Gemma Bell. To
1: be a disciple, And what it means to be a different kind of disciple, one that is, I guess we're using the terminology, read Jesus being a a follower and acting as one that is truly following Christ. So just to intro myself a bit, my name is Gemma Bell and I work for Fusion and I'm based on the Mornington Peninsula, which would be a really wetter and windier place right now. Um, And it's a beautiful place. We have some of the most amazing affluent areas in Victoria, but we also have some of the poorest. And um, my husband and myself, we live on site at an accommodation service for homeless young people. And um, we look after up to 80 homeless or at-risk young people a year at that facility or home. And um, we also do work in schools and with neighbours around us to, um And with the churches trying to almost bridge a gap between what... I see as following Jesus maybe, and what, say, someone else that calls himself a Christian. um, That's better, isn't it? So, I, I, many years ago, wanted to do this work because I wanted to know what it meant to follow Christ. And to be honest, after ten years doing it, I think I know less now, but I'm a lot more comfortable with knowing less, and I feel like that's where I need to be, keep asking those questions. I would love these guys to introduce themselves. I'd love to start with Catherine, Um, and can you please introduce yourself, what you do, and um, what you love about it.
2: Okay, hi everyone, I'm Catherine, I'm Catherine Hingley. Um, I moved down to a little suburb in Melbourne, Noble Park, about 10 years ago, from Sydney. Um, We came there because we court, um, my husband and I, I was actually about five weeks pregnant at the time, um, but we caught a vision of living life in community um, among those who are experiencing poverty and marginalisation and I, w- I guess I was searching for a way of life um, in which I could live out what I felt might be a more authentic um, experience of the gospel and, um, and I was hungry for community and I was hungry Um, to live and learn and serve and experience um, mutual relationships in community that were centred on Christ. Um, And so I found that in the community of Urban Neighbours of Hope or UNO and um, I was uh, mentored and discipled in that community, um, you know, in a way that was really profound for me. And, um, And that experience has um, continued to shape and form me um, and just be part of my DNA. And um, yeah, so, you, you know, it's on about raising up disciples of Jesus to help release neighbourhoods from poverty. Um, we work from the bottom up um, and we value the voice on the margins. And, um, and that has been, uh, I guess, a refocusing of my life. Um, and it and it helps everything else to make sense. Um, so, this year I've actually branched out into a couple of different roles and different ways of living that out. Um, things have been a bit quieter on a local level, and um, I've, my husband and I have taken up a role with Churches of Christ who are hosting us in this tent. Um, so, I guess it's to the role I've taken on with that is to help um, local congregations. Um, and communities to actually um, live out uh, a really authentic neighbourhood engagement as well. And just to be able to use the experiences that I've had to um, start conversations um, across VicTAS with, um, with local congregations. Um, yeah, and I'm also part of... Um, I've also been invited to be part of the church plant down in South Casey as well, which is... Um, a new urban growth area, but it also happens to be one of the areas where a lot of our neighbourhood neighbours from Noble Park are moving um, as they're getting sort of squeezed out further further into the margins. So um, that's that's exciting work as well, and um, that's under the umbrella of the United States. So yeah, a few different experiences that I'm, I've been bringing to today, and yeah, looking forward to sharing this conversation with you.
3: Can you hear her over the wind? Great. you guys all look like this is normal, but <laughs> I'm from Sydney and I'm terrified, like <laughs> is this going to take off at some point? Or yeah, yikes. Actually, I think the closest thing to this event in New South Wales is called Black Stump and uh, it's on in October and it's always stinking hot and dusty, like, so, so I think we're just specialising in our own kind of forms of weather, aren't we? You've got the wind and the rain. Of yeah, the wind and the, the heat and the dust. So. Um, well, my name is Michael Frost, um, and we're talking about what we do for, for ministry. Well, my primary role is uh, I'm a lecturer at Morling College. In fact, I've been at Morling College for 20 years this year, so I've been teaching uh, missiology, broadly speaking, for that whole time and for the last 15 or so years <laughs> i'm seriously it's lifting right um the last 15 years i've been uh, directing a mission study center called the, the tinsley institute where we're really um helping uh, emerging leaders to think uh in a, in a missional framework or a missional paradigm for their work in either cross-cultural mission, local mission, uh, urban mission, and the like. So uh, that's my primary kind of thing. Uh, On top of that, I uh, have been part of a church called Small Boat Big Sea, which is a missional community in uh, Manly on Sydney's north. And we planted that 15 years ago. And in fact, uh, just last Sunday, my wife and I had our last Sunday there. John came along for that. Uh, so uh, that's been a kind of a transitional experience for us and the end of a, of a very deeply felt, much loved kind of project. So um, uh, I don't know if we'll talk about that or not, but it's, uh, that's that's a, a fairly decisive time in, in our life and local ministry, family ministry. Um, and then on top of that, I don't know, um, Uh, whether you've heard of this or not, it doesn't much matter, but uh, uh, gosh, like uh, 12 or so years ago I wrote a book with a guy from Melbourne called Alan Hirsch called The Shaping of Things to Come, and um, it's not, if if I could be really frank, it's not the greatest book in the world, but for some reason, it just became an international bestseller. uh, I'm the most surprised person, so I don't boast when I say that. It was just like, holy smokes, Like, why are people all around the world buying this book? But it seems as though, as for all its faults, it happened in some way, for some reason, uh, to speak in a way that non-academics could understand uh, what the whole kind of missional paradigm, gathering up some of the thinking of guys like David Bosch and Leslie Newbegin and people like that, but maybe our readers might not have read, but kind of learned from them through us um, in that book. So it's um, it did sound like I was getting a round of applause for that, was <laughs> oh, you may not have heard of it, but I wrote a book called The Shaping of Things to Come. <laughs> uh, now, the only reason I'm telling you that is because that book has just had a big impact on my life. Because it's meant that um, I have been had the opportunity to travel all around the world, actually, and uh, speak into communities, collectives, and colleges uh, of people wanting to explore what missional discipleship looks like. So The book's been translated into Swedish and German and Spanish and Portuguese and you name it. So uh, it, it added another aspect to my life, which was a kind of a sort of itinerant like teaching kind of role. I, I, that's strictly in my spare time. I, I don't travel that much. but more than, I guess, your average local lecturer and pastor and like. So they're kind of my areas of my life, my local church, uh, uh, Morley College as a, as a teacher or lecturer, and some writing and speaking uh, kind of
4: internationally, I guess. Are we going to reach? Oh,
1: yeah, give a bit of a Yeah, tone. give it a good,
4: Here you go. Hi, everyone. I'm John uh, Owen. Good to see you all. Uh, we are going to hopefully survive this next 40 minutes or so. I have faith. Now I am part of Urban Neighbors of Hope. Have been since uh, late 1997. Feel very old, actually, uh, but it's nice to be uh, in some company where I see people about my age. It's nice because this is a rookie session, right? Um, we we got that. I love that everyone can be a rookie no matter what the age. Uh, so I guess the part of my story and the part of my journey that is uh, worth sharing here. Is uh, 20 years ago when I was 20, turning 40 in about six weeks' time, which completely freaks me out. Uh, not freaks me out in the way I, when I turned 30, but just how quickly the last 10 years have gone. And I, I've only heard it gets quicker from here too. Uh, yeah, 30 to 40 was not very fast. Uh, we're not very slow. Uh, but anyway, that's personal things aside. Is when I was 20, I gave my life to a snapshot and to a picture of Jesus and uh, I kind of threw everything in on that, me and my wife, over the last while, uh, last two decades, just to serve God, to live in a neighbourhood where a lot of our neighbours are struggling with the issues of life that most of us, me and my wife, never experienced growing up, uh, issues around uh, asylum seeking and uh, being a refugee and resettling into a new country. Uh, as well uh, uh, as working now, uh, living in Mount Druitt in the uh, Indigenous community, so uh, a lot of Indigenous neighbours. I'm really excited we've got a welcome to country after this. Normally we open this up with a welcome to country, Uh, or an acknowledgement of country. And uh, you know, it's just been uh, the most wild ride of a journey. And if I were to think back on it, it was being captured, again, by this snapshot a wild, radical Jesus that said, you know, you know, what profit you if you gain the whole world and yet lose your soul in the midst of this? And that verse has come to mean many things to me over many years. And, and hopefully we'll, we'll, over the next little few minutes, get to track some of those changes and what they mean. Uh, also reflect that that image and that portrait uh, of Jesus was portrayed to me by some really gifted and eloquent teachers, this guy being one of them. Uh, 20 years ago? Yeah, he's that old, right? And, uh, yeah, you love it. And uh, it was uh, just that the need for us to continue to present this radical Christ and not only present him in our words but also in our deeds and in our actions uh, and to see where Jesus is going to lead people over uh, the course of their lifetimes too. That image of Jesus, which I'll hopefully quickly share a bit later, has obviously changed because it's not just an image, it was a it's a relationship that uh, has developed. If I think about how I've changed in the last 20 years in the way I relate to my wife and my wife relates to me, it's completely different. In fact, sometimes I just wake up and I say sorry uh, to my wife uh, for many reasons, <laughs> and uh, some some very cl- recent, but others for I can't believe this is how I used to talk to you or how we used to interact 20 years ago. And uh, and uh and i apologize for the future too but you know the thing is it changes life changes challenges change Uh, but that relationship with jesus also changes and it's important for those of us who want to follow jesus for the long haul we need to have an image and a snapshot of jesus certainly to get us going but we also need a developing live interactive relationship because our lives change and the questions we bring to God changes and and how we look at 20 is not how we look at 30 and is not how we look at 40 and so that's what I'm really excited to be able to share a little bit about but also back to that wild radical messiah that says you know um, and so my life has always been this tension between wanting to make a difference in people's lives and also wanting to serve uh, so the difference, sorry I haven't really been able to uh, articulate it properly but you know I want to make a difference but I can't change people and how can I balance that with a relationship with the only one who can change people's hearts and how do I balance those two because it's I don't want to go all the way to this pole because I've been there and it's a very dry spiritually you know everything depends on me but I don't want to go to the other pole and say everything depends on Jesus so therefore I have no responsibility in this either so how how do we hold that tension somewhere in the middle
1: thanks that's fantastic John just to give these guys and myself a little bit of a temperature gauge, can I just get you to do some work? If any of you, if you just raise your hand, if this relates to you. If you are a member currently of what I guess we could say a regular church. So you're an attendee at a regular church once a week. If that's you, can you just raise your hand? Yep. So it's good to know. It's not all the room. It's good on you. And um, who here is engaged in a regular type of mission with a, um, an organised group or a mission community? Yep. Again, not all the room. That's cool. Any, is anyone here looking for a congregation or a church to call home in, currently? Yep.
4: Because Gemma's got a great one. It's a, it's <laughs> I'm, not,
1: I'm not looking to poach anyone. It just helps us. <laughs> and what about anyone looking for a mission or expression currently? Yeah, so a couple, yep, few people. Thanks, that's helpful. So um, I hope that helps you guys. Now my question, and John kind of touched on this, I'm just wondering if you can have a think about something particular when it gets to your side of the questioning. Um, that moment, for me there was a moment where I sat in a small group with a bunch of um, Christians from my church that I met with every week and we were looking at a passage of Jesus' life. I can't even remember what it is, to be honest. Maybe it was a prostitute he was talking with or maybe he was healing a sick person. And um, we were talking about taking that seriously. And all of a sudden it struck me, I don't think any of us really do that at all. I don't think any of us actually are doing the kinds of things that Jesus is talking about. And when we left, my husband said that I think that was rude. I think they found that rude that that we talked like that. And um, that was the moment where I just became like a starving person looking for the, this Jesus that I was reading about. And it was from there that then I began to see a group of people that were doing it and joined them. For you guys, what was that moment? What is there a moment? <laughs> And what was it? What's the story behind it?
2: Often things aren't just a moment, are they? they quite often they're a journey. Um, I could talk about a few crystallising moments, though, for me. Um, I was actually raised in a church that was embedded in a social justice tradition. Um, it was the Uniting Church and it was very, that was very strong. It was actually the personal relationship with Jesus that was a bit slower to come on in, in some of that. So um, I, I just loved as a teenager being given responsibility for organising um, Tear Just Tucker events and things and I would decorate my whole church to look like a slum village and I was just, I was right in there. My church is really good at um, talking about it and so on, but then I got to sort of university time and I used to get off a train, this is in Sydney at Central Station and I used to walk through to Darlinghurst and I used to walk through a street that was just full of homeless agencies and I'd pass homeless person after homeless person after homeless person and um, once I encountered a young guy, and um, and he showed me where he who was um, sleeping out, and my heart just really broke for him. And um, yeah, I gave him all the money I had, as, as you do. And um, and then I, I took it back to my little young adult group at church. I took this experience back, and uh, I just wanted to be able to actually offer a home to someone i actually just thought it would should not be such a radical idea to make that personal in my life and um and i think my group my little group didn't know what to do with that they were very social justice minded but it wasn't personal it was um something that you did at a distance um fast forward a few years my husband and i um we're still students we're still traveling we're again at central station um, and we meet another homeless guy with the cardboard sign um, and this time I've got my own home we've bought a really nice comfy sofa bed and we prayed over it we said Lord send us someone that you want to sleep on this sofa bed <laughs> and so sure enough we, we invited this guy back to stay with us and um, he came and stayed with us he wasn't impressed with our food because we we're vegetarian at the time and uh, we had you know we had a bit of a conversation he just um, He'd just become estranged from his wife and kids, and he was in a pretty low place, and uh, he stayed a few nights with us. And um, But at that time, we hadn't landed in a church community or a congregation or anything, and we realised we were in complete isolation doing that, and we are actually making ourselves very vulnerable in doing that, so as much as we had a heart for it, we also realised we needed to express that in community. Um, and so I guess my um, my journey into this has been um, dealing with those relationships, but also dealing with what it takes to actually not do this alone. And um, you know, I don't I don't think Jesus ever meant us to be alone. And um, and I relate to that kind of hunger or starving. And I, I just remember a point just crying out to God. Um, you know, bring us into a community where this is normal, where it's normal to live a life where our homes are open, um, where we share the burden of that. And, um, yeah, so it's been, it was a gradual thing. But I think those encounters were what um, kind of spurred me on. And you really do um, realise what Jesus is saying when you respond to the least of these, I'm there. Um, And you really do experience Christ in those moments, yeah.
3: Thanks, Katherine. Well, if we're we talking about uh, the time I can trace a really specific moment where I felt the need to be re Jesus'ed, I would go back to a time many years ago now when um, I took my little girls, my girls are all women now, um, I took them to the Royal Easter Show. Do you have the same kind of thing? Do you have a royal show? Yeah. Uh, and they have fireworks displays every night and I I think this is one of the first times that my girls, certainly my younger two, had ever seen fireworks and in Sydney we have fireworks at the drop of a hat it's like fireworks, fireworks, they're like all the time but for whatever reason um, I remember being with all three girls Uh, they climbed up onto a brick wall with a cyclone wire fence and so they hung on to the the wire fence, and they looked up at this um, at the fireworks display and they oohed and ahed. You know what little kids do? Like, let's guess what the next color will be, and all that kind of jazz. And, and you know how it looks like the sparks going to rain down on top of you, but you know that they don't. But when you've never seen fireworks before, you don't know that. So they would hide like behind me or under me. And um, it sounds like a very sort of sweet family anecdote doesn't it but i think the holy spirit like really crushed me in that moment because i watched these three little girls with these gigantic eyes full of fear and wonder just at fireworks and i really felt strongly that god was saying to me you know what makes you go ooh and ah what what takes your old breath away i felt like i was saying you've lost your sense of fear and of wonder. You're not afraid of me, and you don't think I'm wonderful. And I mean, if, if I had to fill in a survey, do you think Jesus is wonderful? I would have checked, yes. But it wasn't a, 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 an experience any longer for me. Because I'd grown up Catholic. I don't suppose I really knew Jesus as a, a young Catholic kid. I used to say our family was more haunted by Jesus than, than we actually knew him. But I was converted, if you like, by really hardcore conservative evangelicals who basically they talked to me about jesus as being like the the key that opens the door so i have a relationship with god and and i look back on that experience i don't recall actually really learning a whole lot about the person of jesus i learned about his work and what the cross did and what the resurrection did but as i said it's sort of like well he was the tool god used to let me in the door Uh, i certainly didn't find him wonderful. I don't. I didn't fear him really. I probably feared him more back when I was a kid. But this thing at the Royal Easter Show just kind of crushed me. I just thought, I mean, I gotta do something to reconnect with Jesus. And so um, I, I broke down. I was weeping. My kids thought that I was thinking it was a bad fireworks display. So, <laughs> I was like, no, I just really moved at how beautiful it was. Like I didn't really care that much about the fireworks, but. It was it was a very really distressing experience for me, and so I resolved out of that that I would just read the Gospels over and over and over. I just immersed myself in them. It. It's all that I read. I would read them out loud. I'd read them in one sitting. Uh, I would read, you know, as a daily kind of reading experience. Uh, I just wanted to immerse myself in an encounter with Jesus, and then that led on to reading lots of scholarly works about the Gospels and. I then watched, I think, every movie that's ever been made about Jesus, even ones where Jesus appears only briefly. Um, I just sort of went into a period of like six months or more of just diving into the historical person of Jesus, and I would say that that was my re-Jesus experience, even though I didn't I didn't call it that then. I had to re-encounter him, and as John was alluding to, I had to. What I discovered was that. Uh, He's not like a particularly uh, easy guy to work out. You know, I guess you say you're safe with Jesus, but it's a kind of scary kind of safeness if you ask me. Uh, There's a wildness. The people who understood him best were the ones who wanted to kill him. The ones who were willing to follow him had no idea what he was talking about. Um, His stories are are tricks that, are their U-turns that surprise and usurp and subvert their listeners. Um, he was a he was a wild guy from the north who took impressionable, uneducated, probably in many cases illiterate teenagers on the road with him. And why wouldn't religious authorities want to silence him at best or kill him at worst? And I needed to reconnect with this person of Jesus. I I think I I basically became Christian, if you like, through that experience, even though I'd said certain prayers and been baptized and all that sort of jazz before that. I actually met Jesus. As a lecturer at a theological college, I have to say, I encounter lots of little Michael Frosts all the time. I encounter people who have been raised in church, strong commitment to mission, to social justice, to evangelism, they love God, they love Jesus. A kind got of an orthodox view of theology. But when you ask them to talk to you about their friend Jesus, uh, their Lord, their King Jesus, their friend Jesus, their brother Jesus, their hero Jesus, it astonishes me. The inability for people to speak about him like they know him. I don't know if it's in this book or not, but in one book I tell the story about how I went to a a Christian surfers conference. So these are all Christians who love surfing, right? So they love Jesus and they love surfing. And I asked them as part of an exercise just tell me who's your favorite surfer in all of history. And so they all call out a whole bunch of names. But most of them called out Kelly Slater, who's like won the world championship like 11 times or something. It was like 9, 10 times back then when I did this exercise. So it's like, okay, 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 okay. let's just pick Kelly Slater. As our example, you guys love surfing, so tell me, what do you know about Kelly Slater? And guess what happens when you ask a room full of surfing enthusiasts to tell you what they know about probably the greatest surfer who's ever lived? Like the room erupts. So they're telling you where he grew up, what beach he learned to surf at, what boards he rides, what board he first used to ride, all the Hollywood stars he's dated, where he lives now, where he won each of his titles, what year he won them. I mean, like the room is full of people just like vomiting forth ideas and, and information about Kelly Slater. In fact, it took ages for me to like shush them down so we could move on. Uh, we'd start to move on and someone would say oh I also I thought of something more about Kelly Slater and like it's just like okay okay I got it I got it we've got <laughs> Kelly Slater covered I was talking to them about the need for us to be able to speak about Jesus like we know him like we love him like he's every person that we've ever wanted to become so I said so tell me you guys love Jesus too tell me what do you know about Jesus and guess what happened It's like crickets and then someone goes oh he died for our sins Okay, something else, Uh, you know, he's second person of the trinity, uh, you know, taught in parables. Like, it was just like getting blood out of a stone and even then all we got really were Jesus' greatest hits. Like, we got Easter and Christmas, a few parables, that was it, a few miracles. And I thought to myself, what is wrong with followers of Jesus that they can't speak about Jesus? the way a surfer could speak about Kelly Slater. Does that make sense? Like, to know him, to be overflowing with him. I've got a mate at home where I live who is a Trotskyite and just can quote Lev Trotsky at the drop of a hat. In fact, so much so, it's just a joke with all of us. So, it'll be like, oh man, there's Donald Trump, what about that? And we'll say, what did Lev say about Donald Trump, Michael? And he'll be like, well, not about Donald Trump, but he did say, And like he's got a quote. Or, well, when he was in Mexico, he did. Like, like, Trotsky just pours out of this guy. He can relate it to any current event. And yet, I know Christians that can't talk about Jesus like that. They can't quote Jesus or the further stories that Jesus is told. Jesus doesn't become a reference point, the friend and the hero and the king in many instances is the key so we can have a relationship with God. And I, the notion of re-Jesus in discipleship is about re-encountering, not just like a bunch of doctrines, but learning to love your friend, your king, your hero, Jesus. John? Thanks.
4: Uh, that kind of reminds me of uh, where I live. Um, my Neighbourhood was featured on uh, a documentary on SBS last year. This year, last year, Struggle Street. Did you? anyone hear about that or see anything about that? So, I was in there twice, uh, drawing a truck raffle. And uh, what a good minister does, uh, bingo. And uh, also driving a youth club bus that was overloaded at the time that they were filming it. So hopefully no one, well, no one's picked that up yet. The cops haven't come around, so that's okay. <laughs> and uh you know but i the neighborhood we have there's uh very little familiarity with the contours of 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 the life of jesus and so there's wonderful opportunities to be able to share and we have a kids club that um is running there and i remember a couple of years ago sitting down with the kids and the good thing in our neighborhood when i speak at schools outside of my area i say okay now everyone be quiet it's time to talk and they go quiet and that's kind of a shock for me most of the time because uh, in where I am, no one goes quiet at all, and uh, so I uh, was sitting there. You get constant feedback on how you're going, and then it was uh, it was uh, Easter. It was Easter time, and I said, "Guys, all right, everyone, sit down. I'm going to tell you a bit about Easter." And one kid in the back let out this audible like oh. and he said, "You do this every time." Said, what he said, he said, "John, you made." Christmas even about Jesus. <laughs> and I bet you you're going to do the same thing with Easter. <laughs> I said, "Look, I I am going to do that. You caught me, you know. I'll give it my best shot. Let me know how I go." And so, you know, there's that thing, how can we make and relate everything in our lives through the lens of Jesus? That's the lesson for me. It's a lesson for us. And the moment it kind of crystallized for me, was, uh, you know, I, I grew up, none of you here, because you're all good Christians, would have ever seen the recent remake of 21 Jump Street as a movie, right? Anyone? Alright, confessions. Okay, there's this point where they're, they're, the police stakeout and the operation centre is in an abandoned Korean church, and uh, I recommend you go and just YouTube this little scene, and one of the guys, uh, one of the 21 Jump Street guys, a Jewish kid, starts praying, because they're about to start this operation where he might get killed, and he it says the, the, one of the greatest prayers ever to Korean Jesus, right? And I've showed it to my own kids. He's like, Korean Jesus, you know, and he keeps talking to Korean Jesus. And then he says, how do you finish a prayer? The end, right? <laughs> and, and then his boss comes out ice cube and starts swearing at him saying, stop bothering Korean Jesus, right? <laughs> Korean Jesus has got his own Korean crap to deal with. <laughs> He's got time to listen to your problems. And, uh, you know, I grew up with Asian Jesus, right? Asian Jesus is great. Because he makes virtually no demands upon your life. You know, he's got a couple of things. He says, don't swear, right? So you can't swear. Study really hard and uh, go to university. And then and then become a professional. That's all Asian Jesus really wants. And you need him. So it's Korean, it's Jesus. Korean Jesus. Korean yeah, right. Malaysian first generation migrant Jesus doesn't make that many demands. And then I was captured by this image of this radical Jesus. And uh, so, uh, and in, in both ways, you know, the first Jesus is kind of about, you say that your prayers are, bless me as I take on this very difficult pursuit. It is going to be very demanding of me, but ultimately will be for my own gain. And uh, then I, I kind of gave my life in for this radical Jesus, this Jesus who, who took those guys and he took them to Caesarea Philippi, and took them to you know this obscure place where they thought that you know the uh, the uh, you know the, the gates of hell were actually there. He said, "Hey, this is where I'm going to build my church." You know, that Jesus. And and uh, so I started trying to please that Jesus. And then uh, there was this moment where um, we were running a youth club with uh, asylum seekers, and this 11-year-old girl, which is the same age as my youngest of three daughters now, said to me at the end of youth group where we talk about stuff and we pray for each other, she just said, can you pray that we're not deported? Because I'm not ready to die. And that was that was at a time where she was facing the real risk of deportation, as many asylum seekers kids are today. And, uh, you know, my heart just broke. And my heart was open. And then that's when I finally caught a glimpse of Jesus saying, that's what I'm talking about. See that pain in your heart? That pain in your heart? That's my pain in my heart. And that's, that's where I broke open. That's where I think my moment was where I said, this is not just another how can I satisfy this Jesus. Because um, radical social justice Jesus is just as demanding as Asian study hard Jesus. <laughs> but this relationship, it says, you know, there's something there. And the closer you are to me, the closer you will be to pain and the more familiar you will be. With it, now that that's the Jesus I met at that moment. Yeah. Fantastic. I
1: fantastic. don't say I want
4: more more of him, but I need more of him. <laughs> yeah,
1: good, John. I just want to get a read. We want this to be a dialogue. So, does anyone at this point have any questions that they'd love to chuck their hand up and get involved? Yep. Obviously. The wind stopped for you, so yeah. big loud voice. Oh,
4: about, um, you know Jesus who is the key you know to accessing God and how that's you know, one way of look but really we need to know Jesus.
3: Uh, well, I, I mean, I don't discount the the notions of um, uh, the efficacy of, of the cross and the resurrection, but uh, I take the view that the incarnation is the the central miracle in, of history. Um, C.S. Lewis said that he said that all miracles prior to the incarnation point to it, and every miracle since proceeds from it. Uh, the God takes on flesh and dwells among us, is the supreme miracle of history. All of history swings on it. Uh, It is the method through which God chiefly reveals uh, himself to us. And it's the way in which he inaugurates the unfolding of his reign, uh, ultimately, which is assured through the resurrection uh, here on earth in real times, in real a uh, time and space, and so why is it important for us to befriend him or know him as our friend? Not just for devotional purposes, although there is that, uh, but also that we might start to orient our lives around the, the kinds of kingdom values that he demonstrates and teaches for us. So uh, it, it's concerning that uh, too many creeds go from thought of a virgin to suffering under Pontius Pilate. And all that stuff in the middle is apparently not unimportant, but less important. And yet it's that stuff in the middle that reveals to us what the reign of God ultimately looks like. Without Jesus, of course, we're just left with the Old Testament expectations or hopes. And we know how those hopes often got diverted into local political desires and outcomes uh, for the, the reign of Israel, if you like, as distinct from the reign of Yahweh. But in Jesus, we have an unmistakable demonstration of what the reign of God looks like. It looks like justice, doesn't it? Uh, Justice for all. It looks like reconciliation. It's not merely reconciliation between human beings and God. That's demonstrated through reconciliation between Christians and each other, and ultimately throughout the world. It's also uh, a reign which is full of beauty. Uh, It's a reign which is whole. It's about the, the repair and restoration of human bodies and human relationships. So uh, uh, he reveals that to us unmistakably, and he invites us to actually live into that, to be committed to such things as justice and reconciliation and beauty and the bringing of wholeness into this world. So for me, um, I think if I if I hadn't made a commitment to know the person of Jesus, I would imagine that the following of Christ means Accepting him as my saviour, saying a certain prayer, getting baptised and then waiting until I die to inherit the kingdom.
1: Thanks Michael. Any other questions? Someone got something burning that they want to pop out there? No? Okay. Well I would love to ask you guys as someone for myself when I first entered into I guess what we're calling here radical discipleship, doing something risky, I found myself um, hiding some of the things I was doing from my I guess mainstream Christian friends because we were getting a bit of, we were getting some flack for it. Um, It was irresponsible, it was reckless Um, You have an eight-year-old daughter, why are you taking her to live in a refuge with homeless kids? Um, Those types of things. And um, as someone new to that kind of um, world, I I didn't understand what my place was um, as someone that was seeking this lifestyle. How do I relate to mainstream Christian friends and, and the church? So give us your wisdom on that. Ten years in, I don't think I've yet figured it out completely. So, <laughs> love to hear your thoughts on it.
4: <laughs> <laughs> uh, a couple of things is, um, you know, you uh, when you step into that journey, as those of us here who have, uh, from a uh, from a the beautiful beginning point of having a church community and a faith community that encourages you to deepen and develop your relationship with jesus Uh, it is uh it's scary taking the first few steps what uh we found is the hardest part of that is that uh, you begin to uh start interacting with a different bunch of people who you're reaching out to who have a different bunch of life experiences homeless people uh people who have found themselves homeless Uh, people who have found themselves in situations that have had to flee to our country, people who have been born into families where there is generational uh, issues that are going on for them. And um, you begin to ask a different set of questions. And as someone who loves and follows Jesus, you begin to ask God a different set of questions, because all your cultural assumptions, which were quite happily and easily untested within the cultural uh, milieu of your own faith community, all of a sudden, kind of get a pin gets popped into that little bubble, and you're saying, "Whoa! Well, how how can I how, how can I reconcile this with everything I've come to know about God?" And that's where the static relationship with God has to then become a real back and forward, and, and how do we get the uh, the teaching and the encouragement and the support uh, from a bunch of people who are um, who still love Jesus. Uh, I, I've, we've started going to an extremely conservative Sydney Anglican church uh, back where we are and, uh, and there's the occasional gem that comes out and, and one, one is that Jesus was v- the most critical person of the, uh, against the church but he was never cynical and um, how do we hold that tension how do we not become cynical because I, I don't like cynical Christians uh, who say oh, I'm better than the church and uh, because uh, if you follow that path a bit down the, uh, down the way, it, it doesn't lead to anything life-giving or generative that I've seen. And so I mean, that, that, that is some of the tension there. So that's not more a gem. That's more a bit of a, a signpost for what can be there. So I encourage you to, to get on the same page as people who are asking the same questions. And, and then also, how can you surround yourself with people? And this is where the incarnation becomes important who are going to keep you grounded? Hubris, uh, pride, the temptation to be more than you are, is something that we are. None of us are immune from in any way, shape, or form. And one of the uh, the one of the most beautiful ways of thinking about the three temptations of Jesus. I mean, throughout the Bible, we see humans trying to be more than they are. Humans trying to take the place of God. The Tower of Babel, you know, for example. Uh, but you see, straight after the, yeah, straight after his baptism, Jesus is sent straight into the desert, and the three temptations are temptations for Jesus to separate himself from his humanity, aren't they? Uh, they you know, go into this tower and be spectacular, and and and, and make these stones turn into bread, and and be, show everyone that you are God, and and for I love the, the beauty of the incarnation. He says, no, no, I need to. How, you know, man doesn't live by bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How can we uh, surround ourselves with the people who are going to say, John, when did you stop reading the Bible? You know, John, uh, yes, people are asking you to go into politics, but is that something Jesus is asking you to do? You know, what are your temptations? Everyone has their own specific one. And uh, there's specific ones that are saying, be more than you are. Be more than this flesh that God has created you to be. And so uh, you need good people who are going to encourage you, who are going to push you back in, but who are going to keep you on the ground too. And that comes when you uh, not only develop deep, lasting relationships with your neighbourhoods and the people you are doing life with, but also the people who you will uh, intentionally invite into your life to keep you accountable.
3: Thanks John. Oh, I don't know if I can answer that question. I've largely been an obnoxious presence in the life of the church. so. Maybe uh, I haven't got much wisdom. I don't think I've been a cynical one, though. I think um, when I first started to think this way, I just was, you know people who get converted and become obnoxious evangelists? You know those, you you cut them a lot of slack, don't you? You think, well, wow, they're excited about, they could learn to temper their language. I felt like that was the case when I first started to explore this whole missional paradigm. So I felt free and so excited about it. Uh, Maybe I wasn't the most um, gentle in the way I... I I mean, I guess saying to, like, clergy, like, hey, listen, I've got great news for you. Everything that you do sucks. Like, why don't you come and do this? That probably doesn't go down terribly well. So uh, I was a much younger man in those days. But you know something? I hope hope I'm not trying to just self-justify, but sometimes it's the shock of the obnoxious, wide-eyed evangelist that is the thing that turns the church's head and makes it take notice of things it might not otherwise do. So I'm not promoting obnoxiousness or or being uncaring or uh, or cynical, uh, but I kind of like it now. I'm nearly 55 and I kind of like it when 20-somethings think that they know more than I do and They've got kind of great insights and wisdom and passion for this or that. They can be obnoxious and know-it-alls and all that kind of jazz, but it's nice energy. They love the church. That's why they're being so obnoxious. They want to be more like this or less like that, whatever their particular discovery might be. I I wonder whether maybe we need to learn how to communicate that better, but maybe also the church just needs to go up a bit and be able to take a few... A few bumps on the chin by the toddlers who are, have real insights that I think that we need to wake up and listen to.
2: Hey, thanks Mike. I guess reflecting on that, I, I, like, I, really, I really love the church, I really do. And, um, and I think that it's not, if we, just as Mike's saying, if we're having insights, if we're having passions burning, there's no need to hide that. Um, you know that is part of the renewing of um, Christ's bride, the church, and and we need to just um, be honest about that and just have that conversation. I've had some incredibly um, wonderful soul-nurturing experiences in church, and I've also visited churches where I felt um, just really unwelcomed and dry. Um, but I know that. Um, you know christ's heart is to renew his his church and um i think it's as we as we walk through this and as we um experience who jesus is in our lives and as we try to be truer to that um that's just a conversation we need to have openly um with our fellow christians wherever they're at in that point of the journey um and I think we've experienced, and you know, at one point perhaps we're a bit out on a limb, and the church is there, and we're out there, we're doing the right thing, we're trying to have influence, and we're just we're just kind of trying to be this this kind of witness out there on the margins. But um, and we and we still we still are in a way. But I think just faithfully doing that over the years, um, it has actually started to be more integrated into our mother body. Um, and and that's just um, something that's happened through just living out faith authentically. So it doesn't need to be. Um, there will be friction, of course, but we don't need to be afraid of that because um, that's God's gift to each other. And yeah, thanks, Catherine.
1: A lot of wisdom there.
2: Yeah. Do we have any questions at this point?
1: For a quiet group. <laughs> okay. I'd love to hear from you guys as what I found is um, I wanted to be discipled. I longed for it and I was trying to find mentors and I'm often still trying to find mentors to fit that stage in my walk of at, um, where I'm at. Um, but what I have, looking back, the people that have been the, the most profound in my life have been the most unexpected people. And um, John alluded to this before, talking about that young girl. Um, and for me, I began to realise that a disciple is an apprentice. And and a, the disciples of Jesus were men that walked alongside him and did what he was doing. And they, in turn, grew and were discipled by him, as an, as you would an a, apprentice of a trade. Um, and I can recall a young man that moved in with us probably around five years ago and he would have been the most difficult young person we had ever had in our service. His behaviour, I can only call it as subhuman. Some of the things he was doing was um, offering to make staff a drink and urinating in the cup. Um, He'd urinate on um, cigarette butts and place them in places where he knew people um, would be needing to go or equipment would be stored and um, I would lay, at, uh, our flat is downstairs, the young people's rooms are upstairs, and I could sit in my lounge room and hear him um, hucking up, I don't know what, and um, spitting it on the floor. And um, we'd have to take him down to the beach to, to make sure that he'd have a wash because we were aware that he wasn't washing, those sorts of things. And it sounds like someone you wouldn't want to really spend a lot of time around. An uh, uh, average human being wouldn't want to spend time with this fella Um, But in getting to know him and sitting with him, there was one night, it was late, all the other young people have gone to bed and he stared at the house. We were sitting in the car park and he said, I can't be in this place. I'm scared of this place. I can't be here. And what he was saying to me as I listened through the layers was he was afraid of love and he'd never received it before and the behaviour that we were seeing from him was a rejection of the love because it was he was fearful of it, I don't want your love so I'm going to piss in your drink. Um, that, that's a scary statement, that was what was happening but as we began working with him I can remember my husband calling me from Frankston station saying I can't watch this kid pick up another cigarette butt on the floor and smoke it i need to let you know that i've bought him a packet of cigarettes with our money and i know that's not something we'd normally do for our young people but he needs to know he is a human being and he's better than that and we want to try and bring that into his life and there were days where i'd sit there at the center behind a door where no one could see crying at my husband saying i don't know where there is a place for him in the world outside of here And it's not okay and where is Jesus right now where is the hope and my husband's saying to me there is always hope there is hope here that boy I don't know where he is anymore it's been years but he discipled me more than anyone else ever has just trying to find the hope and trying to see where Jesus was in his life Um, I'd love to hear from you guys who has been the most unexpected person that has led you in discipleship And i know you've got stories
2: yeah christ often um shows his face in some of the least expected ways and um it was uh, just close to Christmas and um, a young Vietnamese girl um, showed up on our, at our church and um, she was, as yeah, so it turned out, she presented as a very vulnerable person, just released from foster care, um, not really coping on her own, Her boyfriend who more or less kept her safe in a strange kind of way was in prison. Um, and she was just being regularly exploited by different people on the streets and, um, we, yeah, we made the decision to invite her to come and live with us for a while, um, and she stayed with us for several weeks over Christmas, um, until eventually her boyfriend was released from prison about six weeks later. Um, yeah, so I had, I had a really profound experience with her because um, I went through a stage of just feeling extremely protective of her and um, and just very concerned about her vulnerability um, and really quite broken um, by that experience. And um, I was very worried to even leave her on her own. <laughs> I became, you know, a bit too enmeshed in that experience. And... Um, but what it actually did was it really taught me actually that um, every person I meet is a child of God and that um, God loves that person deeply. And it taught me a lot about the experience of God's love for that person in a way that eventually gave me freedom from that anxiety I was kind of carrying for her. Uh, I, I, I've known this person for several years. Um, I moved down to Melbourne and um, a couple of years later they followed me down there. They've <laughs> since moved back to Sydney and now they're back in Melbourne again. And um, we've we've sort of kept a loose relationship over time. Um, we actually attended their wedding. They got married and um, I was a bridesmaid for the wedding. And um, and we've, we've had a relationship on and off in that time. Um, but... Her life has been quite stuck in a, in a lot of ways. Um, there hasn't been a lot of breakthrough for her. Um, she's had some, I guess, in, impaired brain development and a lot of early trauma and abuse. Um, she was a boat person. She was um, abused across generations in her family. And um, and some of her patterns and ways of elating um, were, quite, were quite stuck. Um, and yet, she was a very kind person, and, um, and she had a lot to give as well. And um, I learned to see in her not just a vulnerable person, but a child of God. And I learned to trust God with, um, with her life and, and realize that, you know no one person is anyone's savior, but, um, but we are just called to, to, to love one another as we can. Um, and, yeah, so I moved from being uh, this kind of overprotective, anxious person to someone who was able to relate to a fellow sister in freedom. And, um, and that was a really beautiful transition for me that actually, um, yeah, just helped inform future relationships as well. And, uh, and I think Jesus really used that encounter to shape me Um, in a more healthy way of um, just sharing Christ's love with one another.
3: I think my stories might be a bit similar, so I might um, just share them quickly. But there's a guy who lives across the road and down a few doors from our church called Fred who also experienced childhood trauma, sexual assault by his father and uncle systematically there's, there's intellectual disability of some kind. Fred has a very limited capacity. Uh, drinks a lot, uh, lives at home with his mum, and has an obsession with my wife. So uh, the first time we encountered him, uh, he asked my wife, Kaz, if she would take her glasses off. And so she innocently did. Uh, and he goes, oh. He said, I, I really want to incarnate with you. This was the expression that he used. And I was like, put your glasses back on, honey. Uh, no, Fred, let's stop think about incarnating with my wife or whatever term we're going to use. And then that just becomes an ongoing joke. Every time we walk by, he's like, I really want to incarnate with you. And so much so that it's gone from a joke to, I mean, it, was never, it was never creepy. It's just become annoying. Um, and anyway, he was drawn into our, the circle of our community. And um, long story short, similar sorts of stories. But in some respects, the thing that I learned from him as a being discipled by him was that I think I had a gospel that needed a, a minimum intellectual capacity in order for it to be appropriated. Uh, you'd have to be super smart, but you had to actually be able to understand a number of doctrinal statements and be able to sign off on them to be able to say, therefore, I am a Christian. And Fred has no capacity to do so. It's not like Fred is resisting that, or Fred just wants to live his own life. Fred doesn't have the capacity to be able to acknowledge. I mean, you could ask him to invite Spider-Man into his heart, and he'd probably do it. I mean, there just isn't an ability. And it's really shattered my notion then, well, what is the gospel, and what does it mean for us to alert people to the reign of God? Do you have to be a certain level of smart to be able to engage it? And who would ever want to say, oh yeah, like you've got to be able to have this level of IQ to get Jesus? So of course our impulse is to say, oh no, no, anyone can. Well if anyone can then, maybe our understanding of the gospel as a set of doctrinal beliefs is too small a gospel, isn't it? Even if those doctrinal beliefs are quite enormous ideas in and of themselves. And so I think that Fred has helped me to rediscover the gospel, relationship with God, the love of Christ, in a way which has expanded my view of the gospel, if you like. He still desperately wants to incarnate with my wife, but we're praying that uh, that gospel might continue to work in his His dear broken heart.
4: Anyone that can help close the gap. So for me, uh, the gap between what I say I believe and what I actually believe and uh, the gap between me saying I love Jesus and want to be like Jesus and actually me trying to become more like Jesus and to fall more in love with Jesus. So that's my definition of a bit of a guide, uh, a bit of a Uh, a person who can help me close that gap down so simple story a couple of years ago christmas time when you're in ministry christmas time is you know crazy time you're you're trying to work out who's going to be celebrating and sharing a meal and how can we do this and how can we do that it gets busy right it gets busy for everyone and you have to make it all about jesus again a little baby cute cuddly eight pounds seven ounce jesus and uh and then we got this call from Red Cross saying, "Look, three nights. There's a young asylum seeker couple who needs somewhere to stay for three nights." And we're like, this is like literally the worst time to ask us to stay in our two-bedroom flat. And uh, we're like, "Oh, should we do it? Should we do it?" And we're like, "Arming oh, um, and And they said, "Well, look, you know, she is pregnant." And you're like, yeah, oh, no. oh, and." They said, well, could you at least meet them? We said, okay, we'll, we'll meet them. Don't know what we meant by meet them. They said, okay, um, so here's their number. Um, you can either speak to Mary or Joseph. <laughs> oh, okay. There you go. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Thank you for that reminder. I'm so busy preparing to celebrate your birth that I've got no room for you in my own lounge. So, you um, know, there was those kind of anything that closes the gap, right? And, uh, and so that can be a small funny little thing through that, through to, you know, those huge relationships that with that young fella that you were talking about, saying, Jesus, <laughs> where are you? I need you. Uh, turn up. Uh, hurry up. <laughs> it's great. No, can I just add to my answer?
3: Because i also,
4: I think you said something like this in
3: the lead up to the question, that I, I feel like Australia has a really Bad discipleship culture in our churches. I, I travel a bit, and I'm, I mean, I haven't done a kind of inventory, but seems other cultures, some other cult- countries, are actually very committed to developing culture of discipleship, of apprenticing and passing on, and uh, elders and uh, apprentices. And Australia can talk like that, but you don't see a lot of evidence of it. And so, I know we've just been talking about unusual kind of mentors or, uh, or disciples. But I really think the church, is, the Australian church, has to really figure this one out. I just think we're really bad at doing it. Because you regularly ask people, aside from these quirky examples, but can you tell me whether you've had a significant mentor or disciple in your life? And lots of people will say no. Like uh, there was a pastor and my dad and mom, and you know, they they've contributed bits in a mosaic fashion but no I wasn't discipled and I hear that over and over and over and it's very very concerning actually. Can
1: I just get you to hold that there because that's a fascinating point. Can I get a read on the room? Who would say they currently are being discipled by someone? Yep higher so we can see. Yep so that's that's a small margin isn't it of the room. What What would you say to these guys that are sitting here in a session about being re-discipled or re jesus um, and there's a lack of hands up, where do they go? What, what can we, how can we shake it up a bit?
4: Oh, uh, a, a mate of mine recently, he's been with know for quite a few years and his wife for 10 years and they uh, finished up with us and he's become an apprentice, uh, electrician. That means five days a week he spends the whole day with his boss. And, and uh, I mean, we don't perhaps have that luxury when we're being discipled, but that's his apprenticeship. Yeah. And that's how he's being apprenticed. Like, you know, you get up when I get up, you eat when I eat, you work when I work, you go home, when I. and we talk about everything on the way. And, um, I mean, that's the kind of commitment we've got to think about, at least keeping our minds when we think about Jesus with those bunch of teenagers too. It was life on life for three years. and and the process of that, and so um, the guys I disciple is, uh, well, the culture I grew up in was discipleship happened once a fortnight at one of the pastor's houses uh, in an hour, and uh, we did uh, the topical memory system from the navigators, who remembers that, you know, assurance of salvation, assurance of forgiveness, great stuff, scriptures that are still with me, but it was very packaged in this is discipleship, I knew nothing about the pastor, I knew nothing about his personal life, great guy, but uh, we didn't really do life together. Uh, and a combination would be great. And so when I disciple a guy, I, think, I take the pressure off having the right, right program and I say, I need, I'm inviting you into my life. My life is an open door for you. Uh, you can come over, you and your girlfriend. Our house is your house. I want you to see how I do life. I want you to see how I process life uh, with faith. And so that's a combination of just mundane stuff. How do we do that, which is similar to an apprenticeship, which is mostly mundane, which uh, for this young guy who's a sparky now. But it's also uh, the uh, high experiences of liminality, which is a fancy way of saying, let's fly down to surrender together for three days and you know the plane gets delayed and then we kind of do life together. Mike, uh, talks about trips to Cambodia he used to take students to and how you build that sense of communitas. Uh, you know, David here runs the Mount Druid Indigenous Choir and he's about to go on a two-week tour of Victoria from New South Wales in a bus with 50 guys. It's going to be chaos. It's going to be a whole bunch of things. And uh, But at the end of the day, at the end of that two-week experience, the level of bonding and discipleship and life-on-life stuff, you, know, you would need about four years of one hour or fortnight meetings to be able to replicate that in a two-week period. And that intensity of doing something of value together uh, is something that we need to think about when we think about how we disciple people. It isn't rocket science, it's life on life and, and go through some intense experiences. Um, camping is another great one. You go through some sort of struggle together, uh, you go through some sort of ideal ordeal and, and new deal where we're bonded together in uh, communitas. Uh, which Stanley Hauerwas calls Building Communities of Character. Was that, was that his book? That was his book. Great book. I haven't read it. He has.
3: Alright.
1: That's good. Yeah, another question. Just in line with and how
2: many children? Yeah, so I've got three kids, um, four, eight and ten. Um, and, yeah, so I, I think just in answer to that, it's, it's about integration, isn't it? Integration of our lives, of our ministries and how we include our kids. Um, I often think in terms of discipleship, it, sometimes children have in some in some sense a very innate, deep understanding of who God is, um, a real sense of wonder in creation and the Creator, um, an incredible sense of belonging and connectedness to other people and, um, and a sense of, of rightness in this world because of who God is and um, sometimes we can actually I think damage those those views of um, of who kids of who kids innately know God to be. Um, so I I suppose in an ideal world our our lives, if they're lived out in a way that is following who Jesus is, and that's being honest with our mistakes and um, being. Um, quick to hold, um, just to take ownership of our mistakes and to apologise and um, to learn from our kids as well as them learning from us, that um, together we walk through this life together and it's a conversation. Um, I really try to um, walk home from school with my kids every day because I find that's the time when we have the most conversation about their day. and um, and you know, well, I've got two, two boys and one little girl, but they don't just sit down and have a baby chino with me and we do life that way. We, we do it um, as we're doing activities and as we're sorting out arguments and, um, and as we're talking about someone who was hurt or someone who was left out. Um, as we see someone who looks a bit strange or we feel a bit unsafe around and we, and we just keep talking through that. And um, I suppose my kids always had a room in their house where someone else was part of our family as well. And um, so that was an, an unusual experience for them. That was always very normal. Um, and so just having a, a home that's um, open to others and is a safe place for others is is normal. But, yeah, how they learn to actually own that for themselves, I think, is still a process for learning. At the moment, it's something they sort of observe and comment on, but they're quite shy. I've got shy kids. and. Um, and yeah, I think they're sort of taking their time with with branching out with that as well. And I think God will have, you know, his own plan for them and how they live out their life. I don't need to be prescriptive about that. But um, yeah, I just really enjoy, um, I just feel really grateful for the presence of my kids in my life and that my ministry has been able to be so integrated and include them, yeah.
1: I have a 17-year-old daughter, too, She, or nearly 17. She'll be here um, after doing some sacks today in year 11. And she has grown up at our um, centre since she was about 8 years old. And I have to tell you, it is what I lost the most sleep over. Um, we were walking into something where there was no... Um, remuneration, How is I going to give her a good education, blah, 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 you know, the, the stress, I. it's a, one thing doing it with your own life, doing it with your child's is a big deal. Um, she is a strong Christian. Um, she doesn't find it simple to go to a, um, a large church service with the bells and whistles. She's much more comfortable in a little church with old ladies that pat her on the head and, and uh, chat to her after the service, so she loves that community feel. Um, But when she was about 10, I was saying goodnight to her. um, She was, you know, tucking her into bed, as you do. And she just said to me, Mum, I actually think everyone is an idiot and Jesus actually just wants to be their friend. And I just went, oh, okay, she's going to be okay. (laughs) But some of the best um, things that in her walk has been... We have young adults or not so young adults that live on site with us as lead tenants to be mentors to the young people that live with us. And she has been mentored and discipled by them as well. She's watched them pray for things, um, watched them do life with the kids that live with us. Um, She has... Um, carry the burdens next to them and it's not just been mum saying it or just a preacher or at a youth group, she's been watching other people that she admires and have role modelled to her, like what 12 year old girl doesn't want an 18 year old cool Christian friend to walk alongside, hey let's go to the beach Jade, let's do this Jade, she loves it and they love Jesus she's seen that and it's given her that love as well I think it's been the best thing for her life. Yeah, our life.
3: Were you talking about uh, discipling your children or being they just... You were. Okay. That were good answers.
4: Well, I can tell you what not to do. I <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, maybe I'll... In there. Look, I don't... Parenting is like your next best guess. Yeah. Right? And... Uh, seems to be working, let's let's stick with that. One of my kids is up the back there, you know, being so spiritual on her iPod there. Right, yeah, okay, the shy one. And, uh, but I think, uh, you know, a couple of the insights uh, that we learned from making the mistake is when you are doing life with people whose lives are in chaos, uh, the way to respond to them Uh, from a biblical framework in ministry is not with chaos, okay? And uh, I learned that by responding with chaos. And um, uh, the role of ritual and routine, I think we've completely undervalued and underplayed in Protestant circles. And there's a great um, saying that you can read in any book about the Sabbath. Uh, Abraham Heschel, is that his name? There you go. He's got a book called The Sabbath. I think so. I'm checking. Here's the scholar. Uh, he, uh, I don't know
0: how to say Hachel.
4: Hachel. Hachel. Something like that. Um, anyway, he said that uh, the Sabbath has kept the Jews far more than the Jews have kept the Sabbath. And, you know, that role of ritual and routine. So we actually do have a family Sabbath dinner that uh, uh, keeps us together as a family far more than we keep it. Uh, the, uh, you know, one of the greatest videos you can see on YouTube is an interview with Jimi Hendrix and he spends five minutes just talking about scales and practicing of scales. You know, he's one of the most uh, important, in, uh, uh, well, one of the best of the world's ever seen at improvising. But the way he improvised was he knew the scales and I think uh, things, uh, the simple things, the rituals and the routines are what are going to give our kids the greatest opportunities to then go on and improvise with their faith later on in life. But we need to sit there and do scale work. Who's learnt piano or any musical instrument and had to do scale work? Theory exams. Oh, my goodness. Boring as all get out, but so important. You know, to to sit there, to, to return on a Friday night and light candles and to sit there and break bread together as a family is one of my favourite times. Felt so artificial when we began to do it two years ago, but now we love it. And it's something that helps us return. And we, we do a, a little reading uh, and we rest together as much as we can on a Saturday. And family holidays have become a new ritual and a new routine. And praying for my kids every morning before uh, they go off to school has become a new ritual that sustains us. And it, it is, um, you know, when life is chaotic and when they're surrounded by so much chaos, to have a little bit of stability in their lives, I think, is gonna uh, be something they can return to. And something that can hopefully be a bedrock ritual routine for them. I, I pray like mad that they will have a living relationship with Jesus Christ. But um, I can just teach them the scales.
1: Yeah. Well, we have about four minutes left. It'd be lovely if you've got a question. Now's your time. Um, give you a, the room a bit of space so you can think it over in your head and then pop your hand up.
3: What's the book about? Well, I, I don't think we were addressing the book. I think they just wanted a title that kind of seemed broad enough. And, but some people bought copies of the book, which is nice. So uh, I wrote it with Alan Hirsch, and um, uh, it's really about a missional Christology. So how are we shaped as missional people by the example of Jesus? So, so it's called Re-Jesus, so how can we get Re-Jesus in our, our context? It's, um, it's I think it's the worst selling book I've ever written, so if you'd like to buy copies, I think my publisher would have a heart attack, you know, so, yeah, not a very popular book, unfortunately. They're like your babies, your books, you love them all equally.
1: (laughs) There are copies for sale in the foyer in there, and you might even be able to get
3: one signed. I'll sign a dozen of them.
4: <laughs> Kira, is there anything you want to plug there? In that suitcase? Yeah? You, you want to sell something? What? What's in the suitcase that you want to sell apart from Miami's? You took out
0: your already.
4: Right. Okay. She's printed some t shirts from uh, that we got from an op shop together. And what are you raising the money for? Yeah, alright. So, you want to pull
3: out one and show them? Alright, very limited sizes because they're from mock shops.
4: But it says on it, I climbed Mount Druid. That's awesome. If you've never been to Mount Druid, that's actually very funny. Kira,
1: where will they be if people want to buy those, hun? Well if there's no other questions, have you appreciated hearing the stories? Yeah. It's been, a, it's been a real insight for me. I don't know about you, it just gets past the um, flowery words and to the nitty gritty of life. So I've really appreciated what you've shared. Thank you. And um, I'd love to ask Catherine to pray for us in a second to close. But before I do, just love to hear from you. What what if anything did you will you be taking away from this session? Call it out. T-shirt. A t-shirt, <laughs> nice. How about for others?
4: That's a really good point actually that I'd like to expand on is one of the things that people talk about when they go on the Life of Radical Discipleship is they talk about how lonely it is. And and it's like they're trying to reinvent the wheel when there are people who have done what we've done. We're not doing anything new. We're not doing anything unique. Find someone who's 10 years down the track and hunt them down and and say, you know, that's why every time I see I'm anywhere near David, I say we have to go for a coffee. We have to go for a coffee and say, what's happening in the next decade of my life, marriage and And he just gives me his reflections. And I need those times because I track him down and make that intentional. Find someone who's 10 years down the track. Make a time. You need to take... Because you're not going to do anything new, but if you don't seek them out, you'll you'll actually be... uh, You'll miss out on so much wisdom and insight. And again, another thing about our country, we don't value eldership as much as we should.
1: So, guys, where are you based? If people were interested in getting involved in in what you guys are doing,
4: Mount Druitt. So, go climb Mount So, come out
2: and Catherine's. I'm southeast, say so Noble Park, but also involved in, um Casey area too. So, that way. And, I, and
1: I'm on the Mornington Peninsula. So, we might close in prayer. We've got the the, sim, the signal. All right, so let's pray.
2: Yeah, God, I just want to thank you for your presence among us, Jesus, our brother, our Lord, our friend, our king. Yeah, we just want to honor you with um, the thoughts that have been placed on our heart. Um, Lord, I just pray that that which you want to settle deep in our hearts will settle there and that which you want to drop will just drop. Um, Lord, I also just want to pray for each person here that um, they can find connection that they can find people to invest in their lives, they can find people to invest in, Lord, and that um, you just join those dots and draw us together so that we can move forward as one. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: This was one of many conversations recorded live at Surrender 16. We hope you found this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking. Please check in with us at surrender.org.au for more resources and opportunities to engage and connect with our wider movement.